This came to me in a dream last night. My name is Annie. I've been with Laura and Dale. The good Dale is in the lodge and he can't leave. Write it in your diary. It's 1.30 a.m. I'm crying so hard I can hardly breathe. Now I know it isn't Bob. I know who it is. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, June 20th, and this morning we'll finally get all of our facts straight. Or at least the FAQs. Today, for 42 minutes, we'll be meeting David Bushman and Arthur Smith, authors of the recent Twin Peaks FAQ. All that's left to know about a place both wonderful and strange, published by Applause Theater and Cinema Books, May 1st, 2016. Twin Peaks, the infamously strange, seductive, and confounding murder mystery that made network television safe for surrealism, has returned to the small screen after 25 years. Created by David Lynch and Mark Frost, the series enjoys a hallowed standing in popular culture and remains a touchstone in the evolution of TV as an artistic medium. For its many intensely devoted fans, Twin Peaks continues to beguile and disturb and delight. It's a bottomless well of illusions, symbols, conundrums to ponder, and images to unpack. An endlessly engrossing puzzle box, an obsessive's dream. Twin Peaks FAQ will guide longtime fans and the newly initiated through the origins of the series, take them behind the scenes during its production, and transport readers deep into the rich mythology that made Twin Peaks a cultural phenomenon. The book features detailed episode guides, character breakdowns, and explorations of the show's distinctive music, fashion, and locations. With a sometimes snarky, always thoughtful, but never dry or academic analysis of Twin Peaks' myriad oddities, mysteries, references, and delicious insanity, Twin Peaks FAQ is a comprehensive, immersive, irresistible reference for experts and newbies alike. The book's authors are television curators at the Paley Center for Media in New York City. David Bushman has been a program director at TV Land and a television editor at Variety. Arthur Smith, no relation to Harold, fronts a retro rock outfit called Zombies of the Stratosphere. It really is a fun honor to welcome these members of the Twin Peaks community to 42 Minutes. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I mean, yeah, that was um, quite an intro. Um, very impressive, I, and um, I should mention that Arthur is here with me, so I'm going to put you on speaker, okay? Excellent. All right. Hello. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Good. So Arthur's right here with me. Hi, how are you? Great. Okay, so one of the funnest things about Twin Peaks coming back is to discover the Twin Peaks community and how... Uh, these things that I did in in private with my friends, now there's an ongoing discussion on social media about all the different clues and meanings and stuff. Uh, how long have you guys been a part of the Twin, Commun- Twin Peaks community, would you say? Well, you know, the Twin Peaks originally had during the uh, pre, I guess, earliest days of um, internet social activity over TV shows. So there was this kind of nascent uh, movement, but it was nothing at all like it is now. What was cool was that 
there were people because of their passion for the show who kept the memory of the show alive for 25 years, essentially, with no expectation or hope of ever seeing anything else uh, about it. And so they were always out there. It's just that, um, you know, you had Wrapped in Plastic, the fanzine, you had Welcome to Twin Peaks, that incredible website by Peter Dom, and you had um, the Twin Peaks archive and the Doug, Doug Beforeum by Misha. So, you know, it was always it was amazing that for a TV show that was 25, that had been dormant for 25 years, that there was all that activity going on. And now, of course, it's just it's just totally erupted. And so then, do you guys think you you were right? I mean, that's the thing I'm kind of curious about. So, how what is the chronology of this book coming together? And how much time did you spend writing it? You know, what is what is the evolution of it? Well, um, we, they're getting into the weeds here. We had um, suggested before there was any talk of Twin Peaks coming back, we had suggested, um, we had put together a list of maybe five, six, seven ideas for our, to our publisher, Applause, and initially, actually, they we were going to do a book on superheroes, but then there were some issue with photographs, and in the time that we were negotiating with them over um, you know, they had approved the superheroes and we started researching that. And in that time, that was when it was announced that Twin Peaks was coming back. So then when they decided not to go ahead with the superheroes because of these uh, photographic considerations, they said to us, you know, Twin Peaks has now jumped to the to the top of our list. So it had been on our initial proposal. That had been one of the things we had said we'd like to, to write about. Right. We had, because, you know, Arthur and I work at, the Paley Center for Media. We, the Paley Center for Media had um, a, screen, pre, a, pre, a U.S. premiere screening of Twin Peaks back in 90 when um, ABC had not yet given it an air date. We had Mark Frost was there, Kyle McLaughlin. You know, we've done stuff with Twin Peaks over the, over the years. Um, you know, we've had screenings and things like that. So, and, we're, and, you know, we're television historians. So we, you know, you spoke about the significance of the show in your intro, and this is a show that, in our minds, certainly as TV enthusiasts and people who love strange TV, and um, that has never gone away at all. It's always been um, something that you know we've uh, remembered fondly, and comes up, you know, often in terms of influencing other shows. So it's always been sort of on our um, in our radar, and then. Um, so that was why we originally proposed it, even not knowing that it was coming back. How how deep was your level of fandom before you were commissioned to write this book? Did you did you have to turn it up several novels deeper? Well, not really. I was um, in my freshman year of college when it debuted, and it was just a, a phenomenon at my school. Everybody would gather around the communal TV in the uh, in the lounge to watch Twin Peaks every week, and then hang around afterwards to talk about it. And I was also already a very serious film buff and aspiring film writer is what I wanted to be, and I, I had a particular fascination for Lynch. So um, Twin Peaks has always been uh, not far from my thoughts when I'm, I'm thinking about the things I'm interested in. I think it's a key piece of uh, Lynch's work and uh, just one of the great uh, ever achievements in the medium of television. So it's yeah, it's it's never really receded. It's one of those evergreens, like uh, I don't know, Monty Python or something, where it 
there are just these uh, kind of miraculous, perfect things that happen that you, cher you always cherish. Um, but, it, but in terms of being an active sort of uh, member of a community, not, I didn't really meet any of these other people David was talking about uh, until we were uh, working on the book. And it, it's been great to meet them and see the amazing work these other people have done and, and their similar enthusiasm and love for the show. We, uh, for me, though, I, I've, it totally ramped up, I totally ramped up my um, level of interest to sort of immerse myself in this culture. We, um, we, uh, I went to the festival in Snoqualmie for the first time ever. Which year was that? That was 2015. And when was the announcement? Because I forget. Was it, tw was, so was it Easter 2014? Was it 2015, I think, that the announcement was? It had already been announced that it was coming back at the point that I, I mean, I, I never would have gone to that festival if, if I wasn't writing a book about it and, and, it, and it was, you know, if I wasn't writing a book about it, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really into fan festivals so much. I mean, I like panel discussions and things like that. I'm not really just into cosplay or that kind of thing. So it was really a matter of, being able to, it's incredible to visit the sites. I mean, to go to the, you know, Double R Diner and have pie there and walk over Renette's Bridge, it's really an amazing experience. And I'm really glad I went for that reason. But I never would have gone if I hadn't um, been, you know, commissioned to write this book. Well, when I was, so I moved to Seattle, the Seattle area, I think in 2000. And the sheriff station, it was striking to me because... The sheriff station, whatever it was, I forget, but the painting was still on the wall exactly how it was in the pilot. Yeah. And now I'm thinking that for a fan, that would be worth a lot of money to be able to buy up the painting that was in the original sheriff station for the pilot. Right. Well, there are people who collect. I mean, you know, uh, there are there are some really nice Twin Peaks collections out there, so... There are fans, you know, it's just like that, like, nobody expected it to come back. I mean, first of all, there was that huge gift to fans in, I guess, 2014 when The Missing Pieces came out. I mean, you know, that sort of came as this shock. And then, and then for the show to come back, I mean, for 25 years, people were just dealing in this emotionally in this, uh, you know, nostalgic thing with no hope of seeing these people again. And then... You had this explosion of activity in 2014 uh, up until today, and it's just been the most fantastic thing, you know, imaginable for for Twin Peaks fans like us, you know. And it's and and the show has been amazing too. I mean, it has not. In I, you know, I always felt confident because David Lynch and Mark Frost were going to be involved that it was not going to be disappointing, and and it hasn't been. It's been amazing to me. It's more f watching Twin Peaks on Sunday night. I mean, first of all, it's one of the few things I watch live, and it's just been, there's been nothing more enjoyable for me on television than that experience. Well, so how long did you guys work on this book after the announcement? And then, so like you were definitely trying to take advantage of the interest, and so it, it came out at the right, the right moment. And how is, how is the book doing? Well, I think we worked on it for about a year, and it, it, it's funny because, uh, yeah, we were we were happy with the uh, timing of the show coming out, but then I think we were midway through, and, and Lynch said he wasn't going to do it, 
and that was kind of crushing, but we kept working on it because we were, you know. And that's what I was trying to figure out, that chronology where there was the announcement and everyone's hopes were up, and then what did they call it? It was like Bloody Easter? I don't remember what they called it, but it was, it was you know, this moment where it's like, oh, that's really a shame. Yeah. Yeah, that was deflating, but we were still, you know, we're having so much fun uh, rewatching and researching and writing about it that, you know, we were we we're disappointed, of course, very disappointed, but but not to the degree that we ever even considered, like, maybe let's not do this. Uh, and then they announced it was coming back, which was great, but it was going to be delayed, which actually also didn't work out great for us. I think we came out a little early. But, you know, I, I think it's been doing pretty well. I, I don't know. I haven't really been monitoring yeah, that. Yeah, I mean... We had a couple of experiences. We went to BookCon here in New York City um, about a few weeks, a few weekends ago, and uh, the line of people um, lining up for signed copies of, of the book was, was great. I mean, it was really inspiring for us. We ran out of books. We were supposed to be there an hour, but we ran out of books about 30 minutes in. And then what was interesting to me was that when we spoke to people, a lot of them were not watching Series 3 yet. They were saying, you know, they were waiting to binge it or they don't have showtime. So these were fans of 1 and 2. But then this past weekend, I, I did a panel on Twin Peaks at AwesomeCon in Washington, and uh, we had a packed house for that, and, and everybody was so into Season 3. So sort of two different experiences, but the, the commonality is that the passion for the show is just really strong. I listened to the, and listeners can actually listen to that the panel that you were on at Awesome Con. How big a room was that? How many people do you think? I mean, it sound by the by the uh, sound of the applause, it's it seemed like a, quite a few people in there. Yeah, I'm guessing there were about 200 people in there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so that that was a, a lively and passionate discussion about. It's it's weird because it doesn't feel like it's season three so much as this brand new thing. Right. Although the la- I have to say the last episode I thought, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but it definitely was the most evocative of, of the ABC series. It was very plot-driven, and it had a lot of references back to Laura and the stuff that happened, the, you know, the diary and C- Cooper and Annie. I mean, a lot of people were wondering if Annie even really existed or whether there was some alternate reality where she didn't because of Mark Frost's book and because Heather Graham was not on the cast list. And, and here you had Hawk referencing her, which was considered a, ma- a major moment. So it had a lot of references back to the ABC series, which I think people liked. I was enjoying just the total insanity of, of Cooper in that cube in space and and the guy monitoring the glass box is a part like I could have watched hours of that without ever even going back to Washington State and, and been completely happy. Well, I recall when Firewalk with Me came out, I definitely wanted something similar to what we got on Sunday where it was kind of a resolution to some of these cliffhangers or just an acknowledgement of them. But in going back, some of the Deer Meadow stuff is just fabulous. I'm really happy that that was introduced into the, you know, so that's what's kind of fun for me about the new series is that there's all these new locations and new characters, and it's just really exciting that the the landscape and the mythology just really expands. 
Yeah, and like I, I keep thinking about those establishing shots of New York City the first time we go there. Like, it's a new location, it's a familiar place, but with Lynch at the helm, I've never seen the city look like that. I've seen New York in a million movies and TV shows, and it was just this, this boiling golden cauldron. It was so awe-inspiring, and I was just excited for him to take us wherever, wherever we're going in this thing. Are you all the way caught up, Arthur? Uh, I have not yet seen the last one. I have a, a four-month-old baby that's very disrespectful. Uh, <laughs> so that's uh, that's on the DVR as soon as I can get to it. I have, I've seen all the the ones except for the very latest. Okay, so I don't I want to I don't want to give you any spoilers. Um, but oh, what about okay. what's that? I think oh it's okay. Don't don't worry about it. I'll I'll be happy to watch it either way. <laughs> Well, because it was funny. I, I didn't watch it. I, I am actually watching it for the most part live also, and I'm really happy that it's one episode at a time uh, a week so that I the idea of binging this doesn't make sense to me because it's too much. I need a full week to kind of process what, what the heck I just experienced. Uh, but I, I noticed that a lot of the community members were really taken with this last episode, that they really felt like this was what, what they, you know, I heard many people tweet, you know, like, I've been waiting for this one for 25 years. Yeah, I have the same exact um, sense that this was an ex- the, possibly after the premiere that this uh, generated the most um, enthusiasm. And I think you're right for the reasons why. Again, there were all these references back. I mean, there's a lot of time in Twin Peaks as opposed to some of the other episodes. And, I mean, I agree with Arthur. I, I'm loving this wherever it goes, but but there is something nice nice about that. Um, you know, we met, met Diane, and, you know, there was a lot of Gordon, a lot of Albert, um, you know, Hawk, so and the horns, and so I mean, it was just very evocative of uh, 25 years ago. Very poignant too, seeing Miguel Ferrer, who's so great, uh, and also actually Doc is in, uh, yeah, is in. He makes his last appearance on screen, and it's in last week's episode, and that, you know, Mark Frost's dad, Mark and Scott Frost's dad, that was also very poignant. And I think you mentioned on the panel, or. No, you didn't. So I listened to so many podcasts at this point. No, Someone... I know that's, there's so much stuff going on about this show. It's it's un, it's unbelievable. But God, I find it so helpful too, though. So it's like people are saying things that I would not think of, but I love to try on their idea and not necessarily say, "Well, this is clearly correct." <laughs> Just like, "Well, that's an interesting thought." But that was Father's Day, too, that this episode aired on Father's Day, and it was, you know, Mark Frost's father. Right. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was pretty moving. But for me, I'm, I'm, I'm finding a lot of, like, comfort. There's something about Albert that feels like that. He is kind of the, there's something about his character that I just really resonate with in this, in this, uh, this uh, season, I guess. He's just such a incredibly deaf, comedic, uh, deadpan actor. He's just uh, he's got that peculiar charisma and, and that voice and that face. And he, yeah, he's he's always uh, we're always happy to see a scene with Albert. Yeah. Well, what about the pre-show activities? I know that so you guys are in New York, and there was 
there was some kind of Showtime thing that happened there. Were you able to go to that? We we went uh, we went to uh, there was a thing that Showtime did in Brooklyn, uh, which I was at, where there were um, you know giveaways and photo opportunities and um, you know recreations of like the lodge and all that kind of stuff. So I did go to that. Yes, um, it was and you know it was funny because uh, I was talking to a couple of my friends who were there. You know, I call them Twin Peaks friends because that's basically how I know them and, inter- and interact with them. And one of them was saying it was packed. It was really packed. And um, one of them was saying, oh, I thought that it was going to be another one of these events where there were like five of us there, meaning that, you know, all those long, lonely years where you were a Twin Peaks fan and, and there wasn't this kind of um, uh, hoopla around it. And, and you know, uh, another one of my friends said to him, you know, I thought, I think those days are over, um, at least for now. Um, so he was expecting it to be like this, you know, he, we had no idea how much enthusiasm there would be at this, for this event. And it, and it was, was jammed. So that's one of the problems that I'm having with the podcast is that there's, there's enough similarity, even though the personalities are quite different, that I'm still trying to learn who these members of the Twin Peaks community are. But um, do you, have you – so like there's John Thorne and Brad Dukes and Scott Ryan. Well, Scott's awful happy that you just mentioned his name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, Scott and John have, have revived – uh, have come up with a new iteration of Wrapped in Plastic, which they're calling uh, Blue Rose Magazine, which uh, Mark Gibbons, who does um, the Dear Meadow podcast, and I just wrote an article for on Hazel Drew. I don't know if you're familiar with her name, but that was a 1908, I think, murder case in upstate New York that uh, helped inspire the uh, for Mark Frost, who used to summer up there as a kid, helped inspire the Laura story. So Scott and Mark are doing that. Brad, of course, wrote the definitive history of Twin Peaks, the oral history called Reflections. Uh, Mark Givens does Deer Meadow podcast. Maya McBriar is a Twin Peaks fanatic. Uh, she has a blog. Um, and those, that, those, that was the, the... And Peter Dom, of course, does that incredible website, Welcome to Twin Peaks. And that was the panel, basically, in, in Washington. And then Misha Cronin does uh, the Twin Peaks Archive, which has the great forum, the, the Doug Forum. Okay, and then uh, Scott Ryan also, I think, is responsible for the Red Room podcast? Yes, which yeah. is not Twin Peaks, but it does do a lot of Twin Peaks. Okay, but, I mean, it seems like it's... It's had a bunch. It's it's been in production for a while because I think it's like a hundred and hundred plus yep. episodes. Yep. Yeah. What about Twin Peaks Unwrapped? Are you familiar with that one? Well, yeah, the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Ben and Brian. Uh, I met those guys. Uh, yeah, we met them in in Richmond right. at the uh, East Coast Twin Peaks. Uh, convention was that uh, the one great southern the great southern yeah yeah i mean those guys are amazing they do like weekly podcasts and um you know they're always lining up interviews and they're also just really nice really friendly nice guys. and supportive very supportive of i mean that's one thing about the twin peaks community is 
you know, there's a lot of um, camaraderie and brotherhood and support for other people's projects, which in fandom is really not always the case. But but these people are really great. The curiosity to me is, do they record this together in the same room, or do you think that they're in different in their different houses and uh, reaching people via Skype or something? Ben and Brian. Yeah. They live in different cities, so okay. I think I yeah. think they're not together. Okay. Um, yeah, Hazel Drew. I didn't know about Hazel Drew, and then there was a story in the Washington Post about it. How did that come about? Um, so, well, when I was researching the book I wrote with Arthur, I came across the Hazel Drew reference that Mark Frost made. He actually called her Hazel Gray, but I tracked her down as Hazel Drew, and that really interested me, but I didn't have the time or space to really delve into it. And then I was listening to Mark Given's podcast, Dear Metal Podcast, and he did an episode on Hazel Drew. So I I reached out to him and I said, you know, I, I've been interested in doing more on this. Would you be interested in um, collaborating on it? And he said yes. And we went up to Sand Lake, which is the area near Albany where Hazel Drew was, where she was murdered. And um, we did some research up there, and we talked to Mark Frost, and we talked to Scott Frost. We talked to some other people, and um, we put together, and then we reached out to the Washington Post and to see if they were interested in running it. Where the, uh, an extended version of that story runs in that magazine that Scott and John are uh, publishing called Blue Rose. There's a much longer version of that story, and then Mark and I are working on a book on it as well. Do we have any sense of, um, do you have like a publisher lined up and when when it would come out or is it still no, we're just... we're in the proposal stage right now. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm also curious because one of the things this show does a lot is talk to writers and talk about their process and, and how they work. And you, you do collaborations. How does that work in terms of like research and who's actually physically writing the words on the page? Well, uh, we both do both. Um, David has a background as a journalist, so I think he's, he's very good at um, sort of laying out, say, the, the production history, how the deal was made, who the players were, uh, how it was received, you know, in a very uh, readable, engaging way. He's He's very good at that. Um, and I think I am maybe more uh, of the Pauline Kale school, which is uh, sort of the lazy, uh, just impressionistic uh, approach. Um, but we, we both switch off. Like in a, in a chapter, there will be an entry by him followed by an entry by me. But I think, you know, we sort of tr try and get a, a sense of what just the voice of the book is that we're both contributing to, so it's not, um, I, I don't think there's a, a, a really harsh dis distinction between the sections that we write, but we, we, we both do both. I would say David's much stronger a, as a researcher and um, as, as a sort of journalist. So I'll, I'll, return the, I'll return the compliment and say that probably anything where you read it and say, wow, that was really well written, it's probably going to be Arthur. But, um, but I... I, I I like to. I like being more. I would say more than a journalist. I like kind of being an historian. So I like to find contemporaneous research 
So, so stuff that was being written and said about it at the time really interests me, which is why it's so interesting to, you know, um, research a 1908 murder, um, because I'm going back and looking at things that were said in 1908. Like Arthur and I, our next book coming in October is about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, also for applause. And, you know, I did a sidebar on, um, on Dracula. I talked to Bram Stoker's uh, descendant, but I also went back and looked at or all, was this, he? <laughs> all this source material from that time, like a, a review of the book from contemporaneously and uh, some of the source material that he looked at. I mean, that stuff's what, that's what's really fun for me, is to go back and sort of put on my historian hat. Well, so what's fabulous about the book is that my experience with it is that it can serve as a reference guide, and it's beautiful, and so it sits nicely on your on your coffee table. But you could also read it like cover to cover, like a book, and that it, it's a good experience that way, also. So, uh, bravo! Really um, kind but, of you to say thank you very. Much. We hope we made you laugh maybe a few times. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. it's it's fun. It's it's lively and it's fun. The uh, the interesting thing that I'm experiencing with the Twin Peaks community, though, is that the level of research that so many folks are interested in takes on this almost conspiratorial realm where uh, I was listening to Mark talk about tracking down interviews with angles to try and figure out where season three was headed. And it just it took on this air of something, you know, it beyond the realm of you know it's like real journalism where this was uttered at this time in the past and by putting these clues together i I get a sense of what could possibly happen based on you know what a writer said 20 years ago at a where he got a little loose-lipped at a at a conference somewhere yeah i mean there's just this whole mythology built up around the show that's that's incredible uh it's also a show, I mean, it's, it's appropriate because it's a show that really is all about the seductive power of mystery and um, that sort of inspiration to become a detective, to look deeper into this uh, seductive, uh, you know, elusive thing. Uh, so it's kind of funny that that's, that's what the show is, that's what the show's about, and that's how people treat the show. Uh, decades later, they're still inspired to become, you know, junior G-men and just dive in. Uh, Mark Frost's book starts there with this idea of the mystery that propels propels it forward. Well, I mean, talk about that book. I mean, he wrote stuff, you know that he can't possibly have just forgotten about Vivian uh, and Annie. And yet, you know, there's this whole reality there without them. Uh there's, you know, so you know there's something deeper going on there. Like, Douglas, did you watch uh, episode, part, I mean, part seven? Have you seen it? Yes, I've seen it. But the last, what, what is it, 60 seconds or whatever is incredible. You know, I have watched that on my computer probably 20 times already, the last 20 seconds of that episode, because there is so, you, you think there's almost nothing going on on the surface, but if you go back and watch it over and over again, there is some incredible stuff going on in that scene. And there's just something about this show that 
that uh, I think Arthur hit it on the head. You know, it's just all this kind of puzzle and journey that uh, Cooper's going on and, and we're going on as well, you know? Incredible. Well, so that that's something that I don't know why I'm finding it irritating, but <laughs> a lot of media outlets are referring to the Roadhouse as the Bang Bang Bar. <laughs> right. It is. It is. The, the name of it is the Bang Bang Bar, but... The locals all call it the Roadhouse. Okay, so it really is the Bang Bang Bar. In fact, it's a real place that it still exists in Snoqualmie. Actually called the Bang Bang Bar. Right. But you also, you see the Bang Bang Bar uh, sign, neon, on the show sometimes, too. But it's just, the, the Roadhouse is just the locals, what the locals call it. Right, and we learned on the last episode that not only do the Renaults oftentimes work at the Bang Bang Bar but they've owned it for 30 years, right? Right, that was something of a surprise. Yeah. Well, that's funny because, so I'm trying to recall the last, the, you said the last 60 seconds is the, the thing? Oh, no, that... I, it's, oh, that whole scene in the Double R Diner at the end. Okay, not not the sweeping scene, but the... So I, I have well, a, th- a three-year-old... And so sometimes we're trying to, my wife and I are trying to watch it, and then we're interrupted. And it's like, oh, come on, guys. Let us just finish this this scene here. Well, I guess Arthur knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Although having a screaming infant at the same time, it's, kind of, it's not always, uh, it, sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it makes sense. I'm finding that I end up re-watching the, the episode at least once during the week after it's over, but then I'm also kind of starting at the beginning and rewatching as I go. Also, I've seen every episode at least three times already, um, and I, every time I pick up something, something uh, new. Like Peter, Dom was sent me a gift, uh, a gift uh, yesterday of the airplane. That uh, Tammy Albert, uh, I don't want to give away too much. Tammy Albert, Diane, and Gordon fly on, and I saw something in that picture that I had never seen before uh, in the airplane. So it's, you know, it's, you know, I don't know, I don't know if there are other shows like that or not, but uh, that just people aren't doing it because there isn't the the passion around it, but it's just so dense and so intricate that uh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to play around with. I know that people geek out about Stanley Kubrick because of how controlling he was of every every shot and having, you know, everything everything was intentional. Right? It's the same thing where whenever I see the stills on, on social media, it's like I did not see any of the stuff in the background but you can tell you know how meaningful everything is. I mean, so when when I was listening to Scott Ryan talk about his his Dougie theory at the Awesome Con, it's like, oh wow, it's, you know, it just really kind of Sunny Jim's room takes on a new flavor at that point. Right. The theory is that um, Sunny Jim may be Cooper as a boy. Right. Yeah. That. I mean. Yeah. I mean. It's. It's a really interesting theory, but you're right. I mean, is that is that mise en scène sort of, sort of thing you're talking about? Um, like w- a really cool example of Lynch's uh, 
level of, of attention to that sort of thing is in the movie Lost Highway, um, in Bill Pullman's house, there's an abstract painting on the wall in his living room. And uh, as, as the story progresses and, and it turns out that, that they're being observed and they're receiving these disturbing videotapes of themselves sleeping, um, Lynch turns the painting upside down. Like you don't, it's just when you come back to the room, now that same painting's upside down. And it's not obvious because it's, it's an abstract. It's just blobs of color and, and, and form. But just that little change, suddenly the room is not right anymore. Something's off and you can't put your finger on it. So, yeah, I think he absolutely has that Kubrickian level of, of attention to every element of, of his composition. Yeah. What did, <laughs> David, what did you make of when, when Cole was explaining to Tammy, you know, the Cooper's uh, improper greeting? It's like this is your spiritual man, and that's oh you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's another puzzle to me. He turned over her hands, and uh, it's crazy. I don't know. What did you do? You have a theory about it? No. <laughs> I mean, well, because it, it's the it's the left hand, it's the ring finger, so that would be you know traditionally where the alcave ring goes um but he said it's the spiritual mound and because evil cooper or mr c or whatever we call this character spoke that that word backwards you know right i guess that communicates that he is he's the doppelganger he's backwards his fingerprints are backwards he's not he's not uh right with with reality i guess or whatever to, to derive from that. And and it was probably like the 10th weirdest thing in, in the episode. Like that scene outside Lucky 7 Insurance, that was an amazing scene with Ike, with Ike the Spike. Ike the Spike, uh, yeah. Yeah, that is incredible. <laughs> with the tree, that's incredible. <laughs> I'm struck by how much evil Cooper looks like Johnny Cash. well what kind of i mean so we're winding down here um but what kind of in terms of speculation what what can you what kind of big i know that there's gonna be some more big surprises and we're gonna see some familiar faces that might not be on that cast list do you guys have any any uh guesses you're willing to venture in terms of like you know what you hope to see or what what you we might see i don't know that we definitely are i know that you know there's that people think that you're being naive if you don't accept that he deliberately kept names off the cast list i don't know that that's true uh you know i'm not convinced I, i'm not a i'm not uh i usually need to be uh not I, i'm not really good at leaps of faith but i, I don't know that that's true i i think the other part of that question is that I expect there to be, I'm among those who expect there to be some reset at some point um, along the lines of Mulholland Drive and that perhaps Cooper is still in the Red Room and um, the stuff we're seeing in Twin Peaks is really happening, but the stuff we're seeing with Dougie is not really happening. I mean, I've heard people say perhaps it's a dream of his, the, the man in... Uh, the, man, the one-armed man does say to him at some point, wake up. 
or um, I know someone else who said that um, they thought that he was, you know, he says to him, you've been tricked, and that he chose one thing instead of another somewhere along the line that that led to this path, and this path is going to end, and then we'll go back to the to that intersection. So I do believe that there's going to be some sort of reset, but, uh, you know, and, and that there have been clues along the way that he, like when he drove by a street sign that said Sycamore, that that somehow is his subconscious um, manifest. Yeah. So, but I don't know. I mean, that's just the theory. What do you think? I, I don't know. I don't care. I, I really don't approach it with any expectations or, or it's just, I just, prefer to experience the show as almost a sensory experience and then think about it later. Um, but I do have, I had a little pet theory that the woman in the cube in space was maybe Judy, uh, Josie's sister. And they did, they did mention Jeffrey's um, in that episode as well. So I just, I'm, I'm curious to see if there's, if there's any, any uh, further indication that maybe that, that could be Judy. That's the only thing I can think of that I, specific that I, I, I wonder if it's going to play out. What do you think, Douglas? Well, it it's so like when a character is making a cameo, like when we when we have the Harry conversations with Frank, and I'm really I'm really enjoying Robert Forrester as Sheriff Truman this time. And Eddie as his wife. <laughs> um. And he's talking to Harry all the time on the phone, but we're not getting a, a back and forth. And so, like, if if I, I one of the one of the speculations I heard people talk about is maybe that we'd have Cooper and Harry together at a hospital towards the end of the show at some point, or maybe even a funeral for Harry or something. I, you know, it's it's like sometimes we see these two way phone phone conversations where we're only getting one way because because of the situation. So I'm just, I'm curious. I don't know if like, like, uh, Arthur, I, I don't really have any expectation, but it is, I'm curious to see if there wouldn't be any, any big reveals. Like I heard that when, when Catherine Martell, the whole cast thought she was dead. And then, um, they didn't realize that, she was Mr. Nakamura. Is that the character's name? Ojimura? Yeah. Like, and I could be mistaken, but that that was a secret, that no one realized that that was really Piper Laurie. And so I think they have a history of, you know, secrets. <laughs> so I could go either way. You know, I, I felt like the number 217 might have been an, an intentional number for some reason and that there might be more. But yeah, I'm I'm just I'm enjoying the ride and uh so uh, all right, here's something strange. I, when I was the Mark Frost book, the saplings at Glastonbury Grove are still saplings back in the 18, 1700s or 1800s and then Major Briggs' body is not 70s years old. You know, there's something going on with time that we haven't really figured out yet and there's I'm curious as to how Mark Frost's book relates to the show and the time and whether or not it really is 2016 or you know when whenever it's supposed to be the 25 years later 
Right. I mean, I think that I think that if you watch that um, again, going back to that scene in the double R at the end of part seven, if you watch that carefully, I don't see how you conclude can conclude there are, that there are not two two realities in some way, whether it's timelines or parallel realities. Or, I mean, there's all you know. There's always been the the chant of between two worlds. Um, and the original series was sort of this, um, in, in all the, in terms of the details and the sensibility and the references, it was this sort of simultaneously the 1950s and the 1980s. It felt and like and I think there's Beach. still some, even some anachronistic evocations now with the, the telephones. And right. I think cocaine was very much a drug of the 90s. And uh, so, yeah, I think they've always sort of played with time a little bit. But... I agree with you that there's something going on and that there's some sort of duality. I mean, of course, the name of the show is Twin Peaks, but I think there's some kind of duality going on. And, you know, we could all be wrong. I mean, but it seems like, again, if you watch that last scene, it's hard for me to believe that that was just um, some kind of mistake. So, Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, it was our pleasure. I mean, it's a really fun conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You bet. You've been listening to David Bushman and Arthur Smith on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Definitely check out their book. It's a beautiful reference. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at SyncBook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and keep working the sunny side of the river, Doc. You wired me awake and hit me with a hand of broken nails You tied my lead and pulled my chain to watch my blood begin to boil But I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run. Too cold to start a fire, I'm burning diesel, burning dinosaur bones. I'll take the river down to still water and ride a pack of dogs. I'm gonna break. Gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. When the forest burns along the road Like God's eyes in my headlights When the dogs are looking for their bones And it's raining ice picks on your steel shore 
gonna break I'm gonna break my I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage Oh yeah